Ephesians 6.17 is our text for this morning. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know that we have been systematically, that's verse by verse, uh, in some instances, word by word, working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And most recently, over the last five, six weeks, we have been systematically working through Paul's uh, teaching on the, on the armor of God, the Christian's full armor of God. Last week concluded Paul's teaching on all the defensive armor of God. And this morning, as we look at the back half of verse 17, we will see the offensive weapon that God has given to each of us. Remember that all this teaching in Ephesians chapter 6 comes under the heading or under the umbrella of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. If you can remember back months ago, that was Ephesians 4.1, and everything after Ephesians 4.1 comes under that umbrella or under that heading. We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called And so as we're studying through the armor of God here, we are to fight in a manner, we are to engage in battle uh, in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We are to suit up in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Remember Paul told us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against all the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he told us to take up or to put on the full armor of God. Friends, if I haven't said it already, let me just say very clearly that this is not a suggestion. Everything that we see in Ephesians 6 as it pertains to the armor of God is divine imperative. It's a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Paul said, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, a command that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Friends, in our study of all the defensive armor that God has given us, did you notice that there is no armor specified to cover the back? Did you notice that? There is no armor specified by Paul, that is given to us, that explicitly covers the back. You ask, well, what does this imply? Well, I think it implies that we are to never turn our back on our adversary. We're to never retreat. You ever notice that the American flag on the right shoulder of a soldier or a police officer's uniform or vehicle always appears to be facing backwards? Take a gander next time you see one of our police cars. Take a gander the next time you board a commercial aircraft. A lot of our commercial aircraft have an American flag on both sides. And you'll notice that the American flag on the right-hand side or on the right-hand side of a, uh, of a soldier's uniform or a police officer's uniform or the right-hand side of their vehicle, the flag always appears to be facing backwards. And you ask yourself, well, what's the reasoning for that? And I'm sure that some of you are very aware Uh, why that is. I think the reason is twofold. First, the blue field of stars should always be in the highest position of honor, so therefore facing forward. So that means the flag on the right-hand side would appear to be backwards so that those uh, stars are in the first or the highest position of honor. This means when the flag is displayed on a moving object, like a person or a vehicle, that field of blue should always be displayed to the front. And so in this way, the flag appears to be blowing in the wind as the soldier or the vehicle travels forward. 
You see, if the flag were reversed on the right-hand shoulder of the soldier or on the right-hand arm of the police officer, it might appear to be moving backwards or retreating. And I just want you to remember that we are never told to retreat from or to flee from our adversary. James tells us, resist him and he will flee from you. We're never told to flee from him. We've been given all the armor that we need to do battle, all supplied to us by God himself. It's divine armor. The command is to take it up. It's not a suggestion. We're never told to flee from our adversary. And we see that again here in our text this morning, that we're not just given defensive weapons, but we're also given an offensive weapon. We've talked about the belt of truth. We've talked about the breastplate of righteousness. We've talked about the gospel shoes of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. And so this morning, we will take up the first and the only offensive piece of armor. I would suggest that next week as we talk about the battlefield prayer, that, that could all, I would make an argument that that could also very well be an offensive weapon, prayer as an offensive weapon. But uh, these two go together. The sword of the Spirit and prayer go together. We're going to covered them, or we're going to take them up in two separate weeks, but they kind of go together as unoffensive weapon. Let me remind you, again, as I have most weeks in our study, that we're engaged in a very real battle with a very real enemy with very real and lasting consequences. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Let's turn our attention to our text this morning. If you have the ability, I want to encourage you to stand with us in reverence for God's Word. Again, our study will confine us to Ephesians 6.17b. It's the back half of verse 17, but we'll read the entire text uh, so that we get the context of what Paul is telling us here. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 14 through 20, pins the following words. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness... And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and so also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, that I may boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's authoritative, inspired, inerrant, sufficient word. You may be seated. Let's talk for just a moment about the soldier's sword here. The soldier's sword. A Roman soldier in Paul's day would have probably had a handful of weapons at his disposal. He probably would have had a bow, a spear, a battle axe. But without a sword, no soldier would have regarded himself as being well armed. The sword was necessary to go to battle. No soldier would have stepped into battle without his sword. To do so, he would have felt ill-equipped. There are a couple of Greek words that are translated sword. And oftentimes when we think of the sword, we think of that big, long, heavy, broad sword that oftentimes takes two hands to swing. That's not the word that Paul uses here. Paul uses the word makaira, 
which refers to the relatively short sword, uh, maybe even a dagger you could think of in your mind, uh, six to 18 inches in length, and it was carried on the Roman soldier's belt. So there is a connection here between the sword and the belt of truth, because the sword would have been affixed to the belt, which Paul tells the Christian is the belt of truth. It was extremely dangerous to take on a soldier that was well-trained in the use of his sword. Because it was relatively short, it moved very quickly, very rapidly. The fact that it was double-edged made it possible to strike on either side without changing position of the hand, and its razor-sharp point could pierce armor. You think about that breastplate of righteousness. Well, there's not only fiery darts that are coming at us from the evil one, from our adversary, but in Paul's day, the, the machaira, that, that small dagger that the Roman centurion, the Roman soldier would have carried, could have very easily pierced his armor. And a stick to the torso uh, would have been oftentimes fatal. The sword in view here is that short sword, a precision instrument and an essential piece of the soldier's weaponry. What about the Word of God? Remember, Paul is looking, probably chained to a Roman guard on house arrest when he's penning this letter here. Paul is looking at how the soldier is arrayed, and he is using what he sees. He's using the armament that he sees arrayed on that soldier in a metaphoric way to describe how we as believers must be suited up for the spiritual battle that we are engaged in. And so Paul sees that little dagger there on the Roman soldier's belt, and he uses that as a metaphor for the Word of God for the Christian. We are to wield the Word of God like the soldier wields his dagger, a precision instrument. Scottish pastor Thomas Guthrie once said this, Speaking about the Bible, he said the Bible is an army of heavenly weapons and a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mine of exhaustless wealth. It's a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, a balm for every wound. Rob us of the Bible and our sky has lost its sun. I was thinking about this this week in my study. Have you ever considered the other metaphors that God uses in his word to describe the word of God itself? Have you ever thought about the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe itself? Let me give you a few this morning. Obviously, we know that it's a sword that pierces. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the attitudes, the intentions of man's heart. That is how powerful God's Word is. It is a sword that not only inflicts a flesh wound, but has the ability to affect the heart of a man or a woman. It's a sword that pierces. It judges down to the motives and the thoughts and the intentions. What no one else sees in us, the Word of God exposes in us. It's a sword that pierces. It's also a lamp that shines, uh, right? David, presumably, in Psalm 119 tells us, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You ever tried to hike in the evening time or maybe even after the sun has set? It's very precarious to try to walk a path 
that is not well lit or to try to walk a path without adequate lighting. God's Word tells us, using a metaphor about itself, that it is a light that guides our path. It is the torch that shows us the way. It illuminates what is in front of us so that we can take the right next step forward. Without the light of God's Word, we are liable to walk off a cliff. It's a medicine that heals. Solomon in Proverbs chapter 4 says this, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. The Hebrew word for healing there in Proverbs chapter 4 can be translated medicine. The Word of God is a medicine for our souls. That's not it, friends. The Word of God is a fire that purifies. Jeremiah tells us this in Jeremiah chapter 23. He says, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord? What is fire used for? Fire is used for many things. Fire purifies. It separates dross from what is pure in metallurgy. Fire also warms. Where is the one place that you want to be on a cold evening when you're camping? You want to be hunkered down next to the fire. And so there is a sense in which it purifies, obviously, but there's also a sense in which it draws us near. I don't know about you, but something happens to me between the hours of about 11 o'clock at night and about 7 o'clock in the morning because I can go to bed with the warmest heart in the world towards God, but I very rarely wake up with a warm heart towards God. And so what do we do, friends? We bring our heart before the fire of God's Word, and we warm it there. There may be some of you sitting in here this morning who don't know Christ savingly. Let me tell you that God's Word has enough power to melt your heart like wax before Him. You ever thought, though, that heat not only melts? Wax is melted by heat. Clay is hardened. The Word of God can melt a heart like wax or it can harden a heart like stone. God's Word is a fire that purifies. And for those hard hearts, Jeremiah goes on in Jeremiah 23. Not only is God's Word a fire that purifies, but it's a hammer that shatters. So here's the full text, Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces? Again, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of times where I need to have my heart and stony heart broken into pieces before the Lord. The Bible tells us that it's the very breath of God. That's another metaphor. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Theos noustos, the very breath of God, breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. God's breathed out word always brings about profit in the life of a believer. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It's also milk that strengthens. Think about that. The Word of God is compared to milk. It's compared to honey in other places all throughout the Psalms. But it's compared to milk that strengthens, or milk that nourishes, or milk that feeds. First Peter 2 
Like newborn babies, we're told, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Friends, let me tell you this. Apart from God's word, if, if, if you are trying another strategy to grow in the Christian life, apart from God's word, your growth will be stunted. This is what God has given us as a means for our growth in godliness. He's given us his word, which is milk for our nourishment. We ought to crave it. We ought to long for it. Every single parent in here knows what it's like to have a child that is craving milk. And nothing else satisfies. You can stick a binky in there for a little while. But that's temporary. When a child is hungry, only milk satisfies. We ought to hunger and thirst for the milk of God's word. It's also a mirror that reflects. Every time we open God's word, we are standing before a divine mirror that reveals to us who God is and reflects back to us exactly who we are. Ever wake up in the morning, bedhead all over the place, and stand in front of the mirror? Maybe I can't speak for everyone, but for me, it's oftentimes not a pretty picture. And there are times, my friends, when we stand before the Word of God as a mirror, and what it reflects back to us is not a pretty picture. But in those moments when, when God's word reflects back to me who I am in my fallenness, it also points me to the hope that I have in a Savior. God's word is a mirror that reflects. James tells us, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who intently looks at himself in the mirror. But then as he looks at himself and he turns and he walks away, he forgets at once what he looks like. God's word is a mirror that reflects, and that's a good thing. You know, probably most of our vehicles have blind spots, areas that you can't see. God's word reveals those blind spots spiritually that we all have. Every single one of us, without exception, has blind spots. Things uh, that we can't see, flaws that we can't see in us. That's why having a brother or sister, an accountability partner, is is helpful. That can't be our only crutch, but it is helpful because others can oftentimes see in us what we can't see in ourselves. It's like when you go to the doctor and and, uh, he has you stand up against the wall and he's measuring how, how tall you are. You know, oftentimes when we have grown, thinking about in our younger years for, for many of us, well, you don't necessarily feel any taller. Well, what does it feel like to feel taller? Well, it doesn't feel like to feel taller. And you wouldn't even know you were taller unless someone told you that you were taller. And so we need someone in our lives to help us see, yes, you're growing in that area. Or brother or sister, there's some area of development that needs to take place in your Christian life right here. And can come alongside and help us. Well, God's word reflects back to us who we are. It reflects those blind spots that are there. And then lastly, and there are others, just wanted to share some of them with you. God's word is used as a water that washes. Or Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.25, here's this calling again, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. 
having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. God's word, it is for us a sword that pierces, a lamp that shines, medicine that heals, a fire that purifies, a hammer that shatters, the breath of God, a a serving of milk that strengthens and nourishes. It's a mirror that reflects and it's water that washes. And every single one of those things we need, friends. God's word is inspired, breathed out by him. It's not the invention of man. It's infallible. It's without error. It's inerrant. It's incapable of containing what is wrong. It's authoritative. When God speaks, God means what he speaks. And it's sufficient. God's word is sufficient. We don't need anything else. We don't need the pop psychology of this world. We don't need the Dr. Phil's of this world. We don't need the Oprah's of this world to give us a diagnosis about the human condition. God's word does that, and it does it authoritatively and sufficiently. And not only does it tell us what's wrong, but it prescribes what's right and points us to the only place of salvation. Modern psychology just tells you what's wrong with you and leaves you there. What about the Christian sword? Paul relates the Roman soldier's physical sword used in physical battle to the Christian spiritual sword that is to be used in the spiritual battle that we are all engaged in. But what exactly is the sword that Paul is referring to? Look back at your Bible for just a second. Look at Ephesians 6, 17. What exactly is the sword that Paul is referring to? When he says, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Well, you say, the sword is the word of God, right? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Well, to answer that question, we need to know what Paul means when he uses the word, word. When Paul uses the word, word, here in verse 17, which is the word of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We need to know what Paul means when he uses the word, word. Track with me for a minute, if I've created a light, haze, or fog. The word word, here in verse 17, Paul says, which is the word of God. It's not the word logos, as you would normally expect to see. That's what that word means. Logos is the Greek for word. There are four words that are translated word, two that are most prominent. One being logos, which we see oftentimes. And then there's the word rhema, which is the word that we see here in Ephesians 6.17. What's the difference, you ask? Well, logos is the, it's a much grander word. It's most often used to speak of all of God's revelation from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So it speaks, it speaks when, when you think of the word logos, you think about this, okay? That's not the word that Paul uses here when he says, take up, take up the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. John used the word logos when he referred to the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, John 1.14, probably a familiar text to most, if not all of us. John wrote, the Word became flesh. The logos became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's full and final logos. Jesus is God's full and final word to men. That's not the word that Paul uses here. 
Logos embraces all of God's written revelation, while rhema, the word that is here in Ephesians 6.17, has a narrower but still vitally important emphasis. What's the difference, you ask? Well, if Logos speaks of God's written revelation in its entirety, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the word rhema literally means sayings. Sayings, or us saying. And so if Logos refers to the Word of God as a whole, Rhema refers to a particular or specific portion of God's written revelation. And that's an important distinction for the very fact that Paul tells us here that we're to overcome Satan by picking up and wielding not just the Bible as a whole, but by picking up and wielding specific sayings or specific verses, specific portions of Scripture that will meet our adversary right at the point of his lies. You see, when Satan comes along and he tempts you uh, in some way, you, we just can't throw the Bible at him and say, well, take that. No, you've got to know how to counter his attack. You've got to know some rhema. You've got to know some of the specific portions that will counter his specific lie in that specific moment. That's the word that Paul uses here. So since we're speaking about specific sayings, I encouraged you, challenged you last week to memorize John 5.24. Did anybody take me up on my challenge? Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who hears my words and believes in him who sent me will not come into condemnation, but he's crossed over from death to life. Anybody need a mulligan in one more week? Granted. Just as a small dagger is applied with skill and precision to a vital area of the body, so we must use the word carefully and expertly, applying specific principles, specific passages from it to every situation that we face. And so, friends, let me ask you this question. How is your skill in using the Word of God? Not just saying, well, we'll take that, but in Countering Satan's lies with specific passages that will cause him to flee from us. Do you have a thorough grasp of Scripture and know how to apply it with precision? Why Scripture memory is such a vital discipline of the Christian life. We don't just memorize verses so that we have some kind of Rolodex catalog in our minds or so that we look like we know what we're talking about. No, we, we hide God's Word in our hearts so that at the moment of temptation, when Satan uses the specific lie, we'll talk about them here in a minute. I'll, I'll give you some practical application. You have an adequate defense, a specific defense to meet the lie head on. If you learn how to use the word properly, God's word is such an effective weapon for every challenge that our adversary throws at us. As I was studying this week, I was thoroughly encouraged by something Albert Barnes said. Albert Barnes was a commentator that I appreciate very much. Trustworthy guy, if you want to write his name down uh, there in your notes. If you ever want to reference a good commentary, Albert Barnes. On the New Testament, helpful stuff. 
But he cautions us not to rely on our own feeble reason when dealing with temptation. And friends, I would submit to you that we do this more often than not, probably. Here Satan tempts us to discouragement or despair or to lust or to greed or to envy or to slothfulness. You fill in the blank. Satan comes and he tempts us. And we try to respond just with human reasoning. Barnes says, we should not depend on our own reason or rely on our own wisdom. A single text of Scripture is better to meet a temptation than all the philosophy which this world contains. The tempter can reason, and he can reason plausibly, let me remind you. But he cannot resist a direct and positive command of the Almighty. Had Eve adhered simply to the Word of God and urged with his commands without attempting to reason about it, And if we were there, we would have done the same thing. By the way, we're no better, we're no more spiritual. We'd have done the exact same thing. But had she adhered to the word of God without attempting to reason, she would have been safe. Jesus met the tempter with the word of God, and the tempter was foiled. So we shall be safe if we adhere to a simple declaration of the Bible and oppose a temptation by the command of God. And I'm not talking about speaking a command of God in a charismatic sense or in some kind of uh, super spiritual sense. I'm just saying at the moment of temptation, whatever the specific temptation is. Remember, our adversary is cunning. He's crafty. He knows where the holes in your armor are. And when he gets through with some temptation, that you know how to counter it, that you can open your Bible and go to a chapter and verse that speaks to it. That's what Paul's talking about here. In Ephesians 6, 17, when he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Specific portions of the Word of God. We see all kinds of silly, non-biblical methods of trying to drive Satan away today. Some people try and rebuke Satan. Some people pray for a hedge of protection. Others plead the blood of Jesus. But that's not how Jesus dealt with Satan's attacks. Instead, Jesus used the appropriate passages of Scripture to mount a counterattack that sent Satan scurrying. Each thrust of Satan was blocked by Jesus by an appropriate quotation from the Bible. And I want you to see this, probably familiar passage to you, but keep your place there in Ephesians 6. Turn over to Matthew 4. Remember, Jesus was tempted shortly before his public ministry began. Here he is out in the wilderness. A definite allusion to Israel's wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. That's another sermon, another day. I want you to see here, in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, that each thrust of Satan was blocked by Jesus by an appropriate use of Scripture. Let's look at it together, beginning in verse 1. Matthew writes, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus didn't plead the blood. Jesus didn't rebuke Satan. Jesus uses Scripture. 
Jesus uses scriptures. As a matter of fact, Jesus answers with Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or comes from the mouth of God. See, specific attack, specific counter. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, here's, here's what happens. Remember I said that Satan knows how to reason? So Satan here in the very next set of verses here is actually going to use Scripture. He's going to use Psalm 91 verse 11. And so you can almost see the picture here. Satan looks at Jesus and he says, oh, I can see that you know how to reason from the Scriptures. Well, guess what? So do I. So here's Psalm 91 verse 11 for you. It says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And here's Psalm 91.11. For he will command his angels concerning you, and their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan knows how to use Scripture. Jesus confronts him with Deuteronomy 6.16 and says, As it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. And then lastly, The devil takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. At this point, Satan throws off all subtlety and he he just asks for Christ's worship outright. Satan says, all these I will give to you if you will only fall down and worship me. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds again with Deuteronomy chapter 6, this time verse 13. And he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written. Here's the quotation. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And what's the response? Look at what Matthew writes. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. See, we're never told to flee from him. We're given the appropriate weapon, the sword of the Spirit, so that we can mount an attack. And as we do, as we resist him, as we see taking place in Jesus here, he flees from us. James 4, 7. See, in all Scripture, there's not a better example of using the rhema word of God to turn Satan away and to preserve the one being tempted than what we see here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And friends, I would submit to you that if Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, used Scripture to resist Satan, then how much more should we? It's a clear lesson for us here. We need to be so familiar with God's word that we know where all the swords in God's word are placed. We need to be so familiar with God's word that we know where all the swords that are in God's word are placed. Henry Ironside once said this. He said, the Bible is not the sword of God. It's the armory where there are thousands of swords. And every one of them is powerful and two-edged. Do you know God's word well enough to navigate the attacks from your adversary. You might think of the sword of the Spirit in terms of fighter verses. That's not original. I think I borrowed that from John Piper at one point. As a matter of fact, I have a, an app on my phone that's called Fighter Apps, would encourage you, or uh, Fighter Verses, would encourage you to download it. There's all kinds of scripture memory uh, apps out there that you can download. This one's super helpful. Fighter Verses, it's called. These are verses which must be hidden in your heart and your mind. They serve as specific, well-chosen answers to the attack of the devil. You see, like a swordsman with a trusty blade in his hand, the Spirit brings a flashing, sharp-edged, highly polished word to our hearts and our minds that parry the sword thrust of the devil. But it must 
be in your heart and your mind. What David said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's got to be there, friends, to recall. And so let me try to bring some practical application here. And let me just ask you some questions. Speaking about fighter verses. What fighter verses do you have ready for discouragement? Like, like right now. What fighter verses do you have ready, hidden in your heart and in your mind, for discouragement? It could be a hole in your armor. What fighter verses do you have hidden in your heart that help you fight fear? Like, right now. What would you go to? What's in there? Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's a good one. Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, and whom shall I be afraid? What are some of your your fighter verses? Uh, What fighter verses do you have hidden in your heart that will help you fight worry? Could be a hole in your armor. Paul says, Philippians chapter 4, he says, Be anxious about nothing, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We don't have to worry. Jesus said, Who of you by worrying can add a moment to your life? It's a rhetorical question, by the way. Cast your burden on the Lord, Psalm 55, and he will sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. What verses do you have to combat worry? How about lust? What fighter verses do you have to help you combat lust? That's an often used fiery dart of our adversary, not confined to the male gender, by the way. How about Galatians 5.16? Paul says, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. How about 2 Timothy 2.22? Paul says, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. How about apathy? What fighter verses do you have to help you fight the temptation to apathy? How about Ecclesiastes 9.10? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. How about Romans 12.11? Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. How about pride? How about pride? What's a fighter verse for pride? Do you have one ready? Do you have one ready? Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. I mean, do you have a verse? How about anger? What fighter verses do you have hidden in your heart to help you fight anger? We've studied one already in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give a foothold to the devil. James 1, 19 and 20. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. 
Some good fighter verses. How about verses for bitterness, jealousy, envy, unforgiveness, the temptation to conceal the truth? How about the temptation to trust in yourself instead of trusting in God? You have verses for these things. And let me tell you, friends, uh, I'm a work in progress here. I'm growing in Scripture memory as well. But let it be said of us that we aren't negligent with the Word of God. How about fighter verses that would help you fight gossip or your temptation to lose your temper or the temptation to grumble and complain and to argue or to be impatient or to be selfish or to be unthankful? What specific places in God's Word will you go to counter those attacks? Friends, we need to practice using our sword. To wield the sword powerfully requires training, personal training, which means time with the sword. You've heard me say it a million times before, much time in God's Word results in much resemblance to God's Son. We need to practice We need to practice wielding our sword. And that takes time in the sword. Get experienced. Become swift and skillful. Know the right verses. Know the right time. Think of a soldier in training, uh, practicing sword thrust and, and moves and positions. He must practice them ahead of time. And doing so will help him in battle instantly recall them. We almost we call that muscle memory, right? You instinctively know what to do. When the temptation comes, you got you've got the verses. It's there. It's ready. It's a ready weapon. We typically don't fare well when Satan mounts an attack and we say, can you hold on a second? Wait, wait a second. I know it's in here somewhere. Um, hold on. You get the point? To effectively use the sword takes practice. Let me close with these thoughts. How might you practice wielding your sword, practically speaking? Here are just a handful of ways. First of all, you need to be in a setting where you can hear the Word of God taught. And you can hear it taught unapologetically, unashamedly, in its truth, we're just letting God's word loose. Not adding to it. We're not taking away from it. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? Those are the questions we're asking. Those are the questions that we're answering. Anytime we open God's word, you need to be hearing the word of God taught. And Paul tells us, so faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word. Word there in Romans ten seventeen. it's rhema, not logos. Hearing the word. You need to be reading the word. Reading it. Revelation chapter 1, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. You need to be reading it, digesting it, taking it in, consuming it. We don't need to just stop at reading it though. We need to study it. We need to pour over it. We need to understand it and know how it applies We need to be the Bereans who receive the word with all eagerness and then they examine the scriptures daily 
to see if these things were so. Study the word, friends. Memorize it. Memorize, 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 memorize the word of God. You see, I start repeating phrases often, and you can fill in the blank. Much resemblance to God's word results in much resemblance to God's son. You got that, because I say it over and over and over again. Right? We're engaged in a very real battle with a very real enemy, with very real and lasting consequences. Like, you probably are starting to get that, because I repeat it. Memorize the word. Memorize the word. And then meditate on the word. Meditate on the word. Chew it. Turn it around in your heart and your mind. Ask questions of it. Seek good resources. Meditate on the word of God. Joshua 1.8 Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouths, but meditate on it day and night. And then your way will be prosperous and you'll have much success. Joshua tells us. But meditate on it day and night. The 17th century Puritan, Thomas Brooks, he wisely noted this. He said, remember that it's not hasty reading, but serious meditation on the holy and heavenly truths which make them prove sweet and profitable to the word or to the soul. Meditation. It's not the mere touching of the flower by the bee which gathers honey, but by her abiding for a time on the flower which draws out what is sweet. It's not he who reads the most, but he who meditates the most who will prove to be the choicest, the sweetest, the wisest, and the strongest among our brothers. Meditate on the Word. We must read the Word, learn the Word, love the Word, live the Word, share the Word, think about the Word, hear the Word taught, pray the Word. The Christian who doesn't know God's Word well cannot use it well. Does God's Word dwell in your heart? Let the word of God dwell in you richly. The word dwell is the the Greek word for home or abide or house. Let the word of God house in you richly. Let me close this morning with an illustration from H.P. Barker. Old brethren pastor, great at illustrations. We wouldn't agree on every point, but I think what he says here is very helpful points us to the need for both knowing and applying the Bible's truths. He sat one day looking at a garden and he noticed three things. He noticed a butterfly, he noticed a botanist, and then he noticed a bee. He says, as I looked out into the garden one day, I saw three things. First, I saw a butterfly. The butterfly was beautiful and it would, it would alight on a flower and then it would flutter to another flower and then to another only for a second or two. It would sit and then it would move on. It would touch as many lovely blossoms as it could, but derived absolutely no benefit from it. Then I watched a little longer out my window, and there came the botanist. And the botanist had a big notebook under his arm, a great big magnifying glass in his hand. The botanist would lean over to a certain flower, and he would look for a long time, and then he would write his notes down in his notebook. He was there for hours writing notes. And then he closed his notes, he stuck them under his arm, he tucked his magnifying glass in his pocket, and he walked away. But the third thing I noticed was a bee, just a little bee. But that bee would light or sit on a flower, and then it would sink deep into the flower, and it would extract all the nectar and pollen that it could carry. It went in empty every time, but it came out full. You see, some Christians, like that butterfly, 
flit from Bible study to Bible study, from sermon to sermon, from commentary to commentary, while gaining little more than a nice feeling and some good ideas. Others are like the botanist. They study the scriptures carefully and they take copious notes. They gain much information about truths. But others are like the bee, who go to the Bible to be taught from God and to grow in knowledge of Him. And also like the bee, they never go away empty. Which are you, friend? Are you the butterfly, the botanist, or the bee?